Chicago, one of the first things that we hear is, how did they cram all the houses so close together? And especially this is true if some of my family is visiting from Iowa where there's plenty of luscious land to spare. And it's especially true if people come and visit Lisa and I when it's raining because there's not enough room between our building and the apartment building next to us to have an umbrella fully opened. So you kind of have to bring down the umbrella a little bit and walk like this. But the advantage is if you open the umbrella, you actually don't have to hold on to it at all. It's like you have your own gazebo whenever you want it. It's great. So city folks would probably be the first to agree that neighbors can make a real impact on your lives. The Runquists gave me permission to share that they met because Keith lived directly above Debbie and he would lift weights late at night, which forced her to go upstairs and see what all the racket was about. Don't mind me, this is working out. Well, they ended up, <laughs> they ended up getting married, and I just have to say, Keith, that was smooth. <laughs> My wife and I were fortunate enough to have extremely good neighbors when we were first married, and especially this older lady who lived just across the hall from us. She would regularly bake us muffins from scratch early in the morning and just leave them at our doorway. She would read the paper, put it back together, fold it up, and leave it at our doorway. Sometimes she would clip out articles she thought might be interesting, like religious ones for me, or anything along those lines. Um, She would also bring a gift to us for every single holiday. And even now, after we've moved away, she has made a commitment to us that every anniversary, she will make us a triple chocolate cake. It's incredible. And when I was asked to preach in the past, um, she would invite me to come over, and what she would do is she would make a makeshift pulpit at one end of her apartment, and she would sit at the other end of her apartment and critique me and make sure that I projected well. (laughs) This woman is incredible. When we told her that God, that we had a sense from God that we should move near the church, she told us that she wept all night. And uh, when we were moving, we did too. We learned from her what it means to be a good neighbor in a very literal way. Today we will learn what it means to be a good neighbor in a much broader sense. And this broader sense of being a good neighbor is near and dear to the heart of God. And that's how today's message fits into our series as a whole on the church vision. Because every one of us has a short list of the things that are very important to us in our lives. And if this topic here is on God's short list, it should also be on ours. And that's why the elders have highlighted it as one of the key areas that we want to grow in individually and as a whole. We want to make this a priority. 1 John 4.21 says this, Those who love God 
must love one another. The echoing witness of Scripture testifies that our love for God must play out in our love for others. I really appreciated the the songs that were brought this morning. That first song was based on the text that we'll be studying today. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Scripture reminds us that we can't sing that without being willing to also love our neighbor, to love others. Who exactly these others are that we must love is the topic of a conversation Jesus once had with an expert in the Hebrew law. Their interaction is recorded in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. So if you could turn there in your Bibles once again. And let's bow for a word of prayer before we dig in. Father, we, we ask that our hearts be tuned to you, God. Lord, that you would help us to tune out the other worries, the other distractions, the other cares, and lean in. I thank you that you speak to each one of us through your word, that it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. God, I, I trust that your word does not come back to you void. It accomplishes your purpose. I also recognize that nothing I could do by myself could have any eternal value. So I pray that you would take the words of today's message and confirm it in our hearts by your spirit to prosper it eternally. May what we hear today have eternal ramifications. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'll read it out loud as you follow along. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying... Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay back. I will repay you when you come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The first paragraph in this section, and 
verses 25 to 28, sets the stage for everything that follows. It begins with a so-called lawyer who interrupts Jesus with a calculated question. And a lawyer in those times looked different than what we might think when we think of lawyer. When we think of lawyer, we might think of someone in a power tie shouting across a courtroom, I want the truth! But for them, a lawyer was an expert in the Hebrew law. In fact, their lawyers had the Hebrew law, the first five books of the Old Testament, memorized word for word. So this guy knew his stuff. And he tried to trap Jesus. And his bait was this loaded question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? But instead of being baited, Jesus decided to draw this man in with a question himself. Essentially, he said, you're the expert. You tell me. And perhaps the lawyer welcomed this challenge. He knew his stuff. Crowds had probably gathered by now. And most likely, this was a chance for him to show off his extensive knowledge. I imagine that he answered quickly, confident in his reply. He, he answered with the great commandment. A fusion of loving God and loving your neighbor. And then in the next verse, Jesus says something startling. He says, you have answered correctly. And at first, it's hard for us to understand why Jesus did this. Some of us want to hop into a time machine and go back there and say, Stop! Tell him about faith! It's hard to understand why Jesus didn't point him to himself and say, Believe in me, and that is the only way to eternal life. But we got to trust that Jesus didn't hold out on this man. That Jesus saw the very thing that he needed. And that's why he said, do this and live. Because Jesus was inviting him to assess his life. Essentially, he was asking him this question. Does your life back up your words? You have the answers. Do you live that way? Because if the lawyer honestly recognized his shortcomings, he would no longer be able to assume that he was right with God. And that's exactly what he needed. This is called humbling yourself. And it is always the first step to having real faith in Christ. So I just want to camp on humbling yourself for a second and and draw out two things. The first thing is that it's humble yourself. And it's not humble someone else. I think... Many of us might be eager to humble others. In fact, if it was a ministry, we would say, Oh, I would like to join the humbling others ministry. When can I get started? But the key here is that it's humbling yourself. Because the truth of the matter is, this isn't something that can happen from the outside in. By exerting enough force, by twisting someone's arm, it's only something that can happen from the inside out. We all have the responsibility to humble ourselves. Number two, it's hard to relate to a bad guy in any story that we hear. We always want to be the hero. But in this case, we're forced to ask ourselves, do I relate to the lawyer? Do I see myself here? 
Maybe you know all the right things to say because you were raised in a Christian home or went to a Christian school or you come faithfully every Sunday morning. But what we learn from this man is that you can know the right answers and you can live a whole nother way. And if you have a sense that maybe this is you, I want to urge you to ask yourself, does my life back up my words? And I want to urge you that God gives grace to the humble who turn to Christ for salvation. One of the most gracious things that God can do for us is to disturb us, to point out any mismatch in our life. But the lawyer didn't see it like that. He got all defensive. He tried to justify himself and ask, Who is my neighbor? See, he wanted to soften the command by narrowing the definition of neighbor. If a neighbor referred to an Israelite, the man could confess his undying allegiance to his countrymen. He would be lauded by the crowd. He could take a bow, kiss a baby, and head off the stage with a self-justified look in his eye. But Jesus loved him too much to let him think that he was okay. He shared with him the truth of God's heart in the matter. Nothing could have prepared the lawyer for the story he was about to hear. It begins with an unsuspecting traveler forging the trek from Jerusalem to Jericho. This trek was notoriously treacherous. It spanned 17 miles across desert terrain where the winds would whip through the valley and it also dropped nearly 4,000 feet in elevation. In fact, there's one part of this path that's called the pathway of blood in Hebrew. But beyond the natural threats, the violence was the real fear. The entire path was surrounded by caves on every side so that those who ambushed could do so undetected. And that's exactly what happened to the man in the story. He was ambushed by robbers. It says in verse 30 that they descended upon him, stripped him, and beat him, and left him, fending for his life. This description here has a personal note for me. All my life, my dad has owned his own store. And when I was in middle school... Robbers came and held him up at gunpoint. After they had took the money, they wanted to knock him unconscious. So they took the butts of their guns and beat him brutally in the face and in the head. The last thing he remembers is that they were not able to knock him out. So they just kept beating him and beating him and beating him until he finally blacked out. He was bleeding pretty bad. But fortunately, actually thankfully, a neighbor came and helped him out. I remember panicking when my mom's friend came to my middle school and told me what had happened. You see, this is a detail in our story that might be easy for us to skip because we're so desensitized to violence. The man in this story was left half dead. If nobody came to help him, he most likely would not have made it. And because he was an adult male in this time period, the crowd would assume that he had a family who loved him and worried about him. To us, he has no name, but to them, he did. He was Ishi, husband, 
and Abba, Father. Most of us know the end of this story, but for the first listeners, they were left wondering, what will this man's fate be? They must have sighed with relief when they heard that a priest showed up. In fact, I think it's interesting that Jesus actually sets them up when he says, by chance, this word that he uses connotes a sense of fortunately. Fortunately, a priest was right around the corner. And next to the high priest, the priests were considered the most holy men in society. This was their full-time job to minister to God in the temple. Of all people to come along, this was incredible. Imagine yourself if you were mugged one night, and then minutes later, Pastor Ralph comes around the corner. This is great! He's going to help? But the man in the story was not so fortunate. And the crowd's hopes were dashed. The priest not only neglected the dying man, but he flat out avoided him. One of these. He went to the other side. If the priest didn't help, we're left wondering who would. The next best thing would have been a Levite. The Levites were the assistants to the priests, kind of like an associate pastor today. But the Levite comes and goes, just like the priest. Notice in your text how it emphasizes that they both saw the dying man. This means that they both had to make a conscious decision not to help. And we are not provided with an explanation why. A lot of people have hypothesized different things, different religious things, um, considerations, like maybe the robbers were still there and they would attack them. But the point is the text doesn't say. So that implies one thing. It doesn't matter. They could have had religious reasons. They could have had socially acceptable excuses. They could have had some really compelling circumstances. But in the end of the day, they chose not to act. And that's what mattered. They somehow talked themselves out of it. And you and I can do that too. We can talk ourselves out of things. Because we can latch on to that first excuse that comes to our mind. And I'm not saying that we should throw all discernment out the window and just hurl yourself upon every opportunity you see. Because discernment is a gift from God. It encourages us to consider if God is truly calling us to act. But sometimes we avoid that. Because we fear that if we actually do pause for a moment and ask God what to do, he actually will tell us to do something. So we grab onto that excuse and just go on our way. Discernment is about caring enough to give it an extra thought. I'll say that again. Discernment is about caring enough to give it an extra thought. God, what would you have me do here? What scriptures shed light on the situation? The priest and the Levite did not care enough to discern what God required. If left to them, the man would have died, but help emerged from an unlikely place. You know how when you move, you usually call all the closest people in your life? In fact, this is, it's like an honor to be called and help to move for another guy. It's like, wow, we've made it in our friendship If this dying man had been moving, he would not have called the Samaritan. In fact, he would have been shocked if the Samaritan would have showed up. It's like, okay, you grab that. It's not very breakable. 
the Israelites despised the Samaritans. In fact, they had a regular prayer that they prayed that asked God not to save the Samaritans. Serious. A hundred years earlier, the Israelites had destroyed the Samaritans' temple. And history tells us that recent, recent to Jesus telling this story, a group of Israelites had been killed in Samaria. So this was fresh. Recent to the telling of this story, a group of Samaritans had come into the temple during the sacred Passover feast and thrown human bones all over the place so that no one could enter. This was fresh. This was a current issue. Their mutual hatred ran deep. Deep along ethnic lines, deep along religious lines, deep along political lines, deep along national lines, and deep along historical lines. This was deep. So the listeners probably didn't have much hope for the dying man. In fact, the story of the Samaritan begins exactly the same as the priest and the Levite. The language is all paralleled. All three traveled down the road. All three came to the crime scene. And all three saw the dying man. So far, nothing is different. We have an exact pattern. Until one word breaks the pattern. And all the momentum is instantly pivoted. The whole story hinges on this one word, compassion. Notice how this is the key that unlocks the whole story. Up until this point, things had been really going downhill. They had been getting more and more bleak. Not only did the priest not help, the Levite also didn't help. And then the guy's worst enemy showed up. But then this word compassion is mentioned. And the tide starts to turn. It's incredible. This is the hinge to the story. Compassion is the turning point. The dying man was on the ground, so the Samaritan probably had to get off his animal, kneel down there, and get in the dirt and the blood. The Samaritan took his life in his hands because the same robbers could have been nearby. We can assume that Samaritan wasn't traveling along with a a bag of bandages. He probably had to use his own clothing to dress the wounds. And back then, people only had one or two outfits. He would have packed oil and wine on his journey to bring refreshment for the grueling road. But instead of being stingy, it says he poured it out. He placed the man on his own animal and walked next to it, which history tells us is what servants did in those days. Took the posture of a servant. The whole thing was risky because if the man still ended up dying and he was found with a Samaritan, you can guess who was going to get the blame. But that didn't matter to the Samaritan. He found an inn and he, he paid for enough that would last 24 days of care. Can you imagine how much money that would be these days? 24 days of care. And if that wasn't enough, he said to the innkeeper, put the rest on my credit card. I'll be back. This man's compassion was unbiased, unrestricted, and unearned. We never even hear if he was even thanked for what he did. And this is where a twist comes at the end of the story. In verse 36 
Jesus flips the lawyer's question on its head. The lawyer started out with the question, who is my neighbor? He wanted to know how to assess if others were a neighbor to him. And Jesus concludes by calling him to assess if he was a neighbor to others. Jesus says to the lawyer, your question is irrelevant. It's not your job to detect who is your neighbor. See, not you, not you, not you. You, you are my neighbor. That's not your job. It's your job to become a neighbor. It's like when you play tag as a kid and you don't know who's it. So you run around unsure, frantically trying to discover who's it. But when you're the one who's it, you don't have to worry about that. It's clear to you who's it and you know exactly what your responsibility is. So essentially Jesus says to the lawyer, tag, you're the neighbor. The responsibility to love is on you. It's no longer a question of who's your neighbor or not. It's a question of your willingness to step into that role yourself, of my willingness to step into the role myself, to take the responsibility and own it. So it begs the question, am I willing? Are you willing? Jesus issues one final sweeping challenge. Go and do likewise. The original words for go and do both imply continuous action or a lifestyle. Likewise means to be like the Good Samaritan. So our lifestyle is to be like the Good Samaritan. In other words, our final charge is nothing less than to make the Good Samaritan ordinary. It's nothing less than to make the Good Samaritan ordinary. And I realize that it's a fictional character, but when Jesus said, go and do likewise, it didn't seem to matter to him either. He's calling us to make it a reality in our lives, individually and collectively. We need to make sure that the Good Samaritan would blend in among us, that he wouldn't stick out because we live just as radically as his example So in the remaining time, we'll examine two guiding principles from the text for actually living this call out. The first is, in order to make the Good Samaritan ordinary, we must see others through the eyes of compassion. The word behind compassion originally meant intestines. So kind of like we would say, I hurt you. They would say, I intestine you, which I would not recommend ever telling someone. But eventually it came to to mean a sense of a connection with someone else that comes deep from your very core. And it simply means that at the end of the day, you're saying, what happens to you truly matters to me. What happens to you truly happens to me. I may be happy. I may be sad. I may be... Encouraged, I may be disappointed, but what happens to you truly matters to me. It didn't matter to the priest that this man was dying. It didn't matter to the Levite that this man was dying, but it mattered to the Samaritan. And that's what made the real difference. Good News Bible Church, 
what would happen if each one of us in this room stepped into even just one person's life this year and declared to them, what happens to you matters to me. I don't care how I feel. What happens to you matters to me. I'm sure it would be enough to make a real difference. If you were to apply this today, who would be that person you could do this for? Who would you come to, not waiting for them to come to you? Who would you take a risk for, sacrifice your comfort for, spend your resources for, and go above and beyond for? Because that's what we're called to do. You might be thinking, what if I don't have what it takes to do something like that? And that's an honest concern. Honestly, some days I feel like I do, and and some days I I feel like I don't. Lisa will tell you that. She has to lay hands on me in the morning. Some days I wake up and I'm not eager to pursue, to risk, to sacrifice, to spend myself, to do more than just the minimum. But the good thing is, my feelings aren't the fuel. Depending on your feelings alone is like trying to make a fire with paper alone. People do have varying levels of emotional resources. So it's like some are burning with a big stack of emotional paper. And it's like others just have two or three sheets and they just, yeah, I'm done. You know? But at the end of the day, either way, it's not sustainable. At some point... It will all be burned up. There will be nothing left. And I'm not saying to throw your emotions out the window, but to use them for what they were made for, to add to the fire, to fan the flame. But the one thing that sustains me, that will always burn inside of me, no matter how strong the winds or torrential the downpour, is the most precious thing I have in my life. I have Christ. I thank my God that my ability, my, I thank my God that my inability can be used to point me to Him all the more. I glory in my weakness. Is the task too big? Great. He's bigger. If it's too long? Great. His light will shine when all else fades. When I placed my faith in Christ, no turning back. He gave himself to me. No turning back. And I have to remember, if I have Christ, I have compassion. If you have Christ, you have compassion. Because Christ is full of compassion. It's incredible to see how often compassion comes up in the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew 9, Jesus had compassion for the lost in Palestine. So he sent out the 12 disciples. In Matthew 14... Jesus had compassion for the sick, so he healed them. In Matthew 15, Jesus had compassion on the hungry, so he fed them. In Matthew 20, he had compassion on two men who were blind, so he gave them sight. In in Mark 1, he had compassion on a man with leprosy, so he cleansed him. In Luke 7, he had compassion on a widow, so he raised her son to life. Jesus is brimming full with compassion. 
So ultimately, he's our source, and we can do no better than to point others beyond ourselves and to him. Did you notice that every time Jesus had compassion, it moved him to action? If he felt it, he did something. I pray that we would allow his compassion to do the same in our lives. Compassion is incomplete without a response. Otherwise, we're just feeling sorry for a man on the side of the road. I think the NLT version of our key verse actually captures it best. This is 1 John 3, 17 through 18. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother and sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us not merely say we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Number two, in order to make the Good Samaritan ordinary, we must be willing to go beyond in all the ways that he did. The Good Samaritan shows us at least four examples of ways we must be willing to go beyond. The first is we must be willing to go beyond convenience. We can be 99% sure that the Samaritan wasn't just wandering around the road to Jericho doing nothing. He wouldn't hang out there. He was in the middle of something. He had a destination to get to, but he stopped and dropped everything and had compassion. Jesus, too, had a wonderful way of stopping in the middle of something. And showing someone compassion. He had a wonderful way of being interrupted. Our society places an extremely high value on convenience. I know I myself am oftentimes willing to pay extra for it. Or when I'm on a computer waiting for a page to load, if it takes longer than two seconds, I'm tapping my fingers. I'm like clicking the mouse a lot. We want it now. There's a famous study in the history of psychology called the Good Samaritan Study. Now, this is done by um, secular researchers. They went to a famous seminary and assigned the students to preach a sermon on the other side of campus. Half of them were given the Good Samaritan passage to preach on. The researchers planted a man sprawled out in the doorway on their way to their destination. Sadly, only 40% of the students stopped. The researchers concluded that the key factor was how rushed the students felt. They would tell them something like, you have 10 minutes to get there. And I don't bring that up to bash anybody, but to show us our human tendency. I repent of all the times I have missed out on opportunities to show compassion simply because I was in a hurry often the most meaningful acts of compassion are quite inconvenient. I remember God almost testing me on this once, right before I proposed to Lisa. Someone who didn't know Jesus was asking me about eternal life. How could I not stop and at least say something? That was a time when God's grace broke through in my life and I am sure there's others when I've just simply 
ducked. I pray that we wouldn't. The second thing that we have to go beyond is we must be willing to go beyond divisions. In order for the Good Samaritan to come to the dying man, he had to cross some extensive divisions. Divisions that had been there for hundreds of years, but that they were also fresh. All these things were a threat to his vision. They could have blinded him to this man's need, but he chose instead to look with eyes of compassion. How about for us? We could go on forever talking about the different divisions that exist in our society today. But there's one I want to touch on that doesn't get talked about often. It relates to this question. Would you help someone who you suspected to be at fault for their problem? I think if we were honest, many of us would answer no. I wouldn't. And I realize why. I get that. But I also want us to consider another question. Have I gotten out of every mess I've ever made on my own? I know I haven't. I've been over my head and it's been my fault. I've needed someone to join me who knew the way out. Most importantly, it was my sin, which was entirely my fault. But God did not leave me in my mess. He sent his son who gave his life to die for me to offer me forgiveness and a second chance, hope and a new life. We cannot be so callous to others when God is so gracious to us. God's galactic leap to us makes all our little divides fade in comparison. There's no one higher, no one lower no one greater, no one lesser. Even if I'm the helper and you're the helpee, that doesn't make you inferior and me superior because God is the only hero here. There's no difference between you and I. You need grace and so do I. Number three, we must be willing to go beyond the surface. The Samaritan not only provided urgent care for this man, he also secured his full-term recovery. And you and I can learn something from this. We need to work for both the relief of ailments, but also the restoration of lives. Imagine going to the hospital with a ruptured appendix, and all the doctor did was send you home with some Advil. That may take care of the pain for a short while, but there are some deeper issues going on inside. And that's where relief and restoration work hand in hand. Relief is like Advil. Restoration is like the operation. Relief is like feeding someone who is hungry. Restoration is like linking them with supportive services. Relief is like helping someone sort out their life issues. Restoration is like inviting someone to receive a relationship with Christ who will fill their void in their life. We must work at both levels. Not only Hurricane Katrina, but also Breakthrough Urban Ministries. Relief and restoration. It's a beautiful picture when they work in tandem, hand in hand. And fourthly, we must be willing to go beyond the minimum. The Samaritan was not stingy with his compassion. He did not dole out the minimum required. And sometimes we can insulate ourselves from people's pain by saying we've already filled our obligation And I love Harvest of the First Fruits. I'm even thinking about next year already. 
But Sarah, I'm sure, would agree that you and I would be missing the point if all we did each year was harvest of the first fruits to serve those who are in need. We would be doing just the minimum if we checked that off our box and never gave any other thought to what we can do to help the hurting. It's true that we only get to see the Good Samaritan do one great act of compassion. But behind it, we see a mindset of readiness. It's a mindset of being ready for new opportunities wherever they come, whenever they are. So I want to conclude with this. It's a wonderful thing God has done in my life this week. Doesn't it seem like sometimes God sets you up to read certain things in the Bible? I love it when this happens. It's so thrilling. And I've been reading through Titus recently because it's God's instructions to a beginning pastor. So I thought, okay, that works. Last week, as I was preparing the sermon, I I happened to be studying Titus chapter 3. And it begins like this. Remind them, in other words, you, to be ready to do every good work. Then, in the middle of the chapter, it says this, I want you to insist that those who have believed in God should be careful to devote themselves to every good work. And then, at the very end of the chapter, the last teaching of the book, it says this, Let our people learn to devote themselves to every good work. God is outspoken on this. It's clear that it's important to him. The words he uses are striking. To be ready like a sprinter on the blocks waiting for the gun for every good work. To insist that we're careful, that we're intent, focused on devoting ourselves and to learn like disciples. To devote ourselves. God is so outspoken here. How will we respond? So as I invite the sacrifice of praise team to come forward, this is my take-home challenge. That we as a church would take this to heart. And I want you to know that I see this here. I see glimpses of compassion regularly that blow me away. And when I meet someone out there that's struggling for whatever reason, I can't wait to get them through these doors. I have great confidence in you. But I have been sensing from Titus chapter 3 and the Good Samaritan that God is calling you and I to take it to the next level. And I sense that the elder board is too because they're the ones who first put this in the vision statement as a priority, that this is a growth area that we want to strive for. I sense God drawing us forward from staggered glimpses to a steady glow, to a church-wide effort where this is part of our DNA, that we would be a church that leans on Christ to show constant compassion, that we would be willing to drop what we're doing to care for one person, whether here or in Liberia, that we would bridge the divides no matter how deep they run, that we would see lives restored going beyond the minimum, ready careful and devoted to every good work. I can't wait for the next chapter as God's will for us unfolds in this area. And I don't know what it looks like yet, but I do know that it starts with a willing heart. It starts with you and it starts with me. 
individually committing ourselves to live like the Good Samaritan by the power of the Spirit in the new life of Christ for the glory of God. Amen.